Good morning. What a passage. What a passage we have before us this morning. The title of the sermon, for those who are taking notes, and I don't know if it was the uh, WWE or F uh, references from the last sermon, but the title of this sermon about the rock shattering the image is, Do You Smell What the Rock is Cooking? That's the title of the sermon. Do you smell what the rock is cooking? And no, we're not talking about World Wrestling Federation or Dwayne the Rock Johnson. We are talking about a kingdom who will know no end, whose king shall reign forever and ever. And that's what we will discuss this morning. I hope you enjoy your three-day weekend. It is President's Day, initially known as Washington's birthday, February 22nd is the day that he was born and is noted in our history as the first holiday acknowledging a president. More than that, it's the first holiday in our country's history acknowledging an individual that acknowledges an individual, George Washington. The second holiday would be Martin Luther King Jr. That would be the second individual who would be acknowledged in a holiday in our country. Later, this became known, the Washington's birthday, as President's Day, acknowledging all the lives of our past presidents and their achievements. At the very least, what we learn from this is that the leader of a nation and their impact on the people is significant, is significant to the well-being of that country. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, was no different. His leadership impacted and was significant to the well-being of the people in his country. And admittedly, Nebuchadnezzar had far more grandiose ideas of who he was than perhaps our modern presidents today, perhaps. The context, if you're just joining us for the first time, as Mike said, is we are examining Nebuchadnezzar's dream, or more appropriately, his nightmare his nightmare that bothered him, that kept him awake at night and wondering what do these things mean. And so if you're just joining us, uh, this book, Daniel chapter 2, we're working through all the way to the end. And uh, the emperor had a dream, the king had a dream. He called, he summoned his wise men uh, to tell him not only the interpretation, but also the dream itself. He wouldn't even tell him the dream. And they, of course, couldn't do that. After a, a back and forth about three times, uh, they insult the king, and that doesn't go well. And he issues an edict to kill, have all the wise men in Babylon killed, including Daniel and his three friends. And so Daniel, in his wisdom and prudence, manages to buy a little bit of time as he tells the king, I will make known the, the dream and interpretation. You tell me when. And so they set a time, and Daniel goes back to his friends, and one of the, it's a, the climax of this narrative is, comes in two stages, not just one. The first climax is, will God reveal the dream? Will God reveal the dream? The second climax comes in our passage today, and I'll highlight that when we get there. But we see in the middle of the chapter that God does, in fact, reveal the dream in response to prayer. He reveals it to Daniel in a vision of the night. And so Daniel breaks out in praise to God for who he is, what he's done. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He raises up kings. He takes kings down. He changes times and seasons, and he is to be praised forever and ever. And then we ended last week. Daniel goes into the king, test day. The king says, are you able to make known the dream and its interpretation? And Daniel looks at the king and he says, no, wise men are able to tell the king. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he's told me what it is. And now we pick up today and see what God has for us in this passage as Daniel reveals the dream and its interpretation. Let's pray and ask for help. Father in heaven, we come to you as Daniel and his friends of old came to you seeking wisdom, seeking revelation, seeking that you would make your word burn in our hearts, that you would reveal to us not just this dream, 
but the one to whom the dream points. May Christ be revealed this morning as supreme forever and ever. And may all in the sound of my voice repent of their sins and believe, trust in, and follow King Jesus as their Lord and Savior forever and ever. And so, Lord, may you grant that this morning. We also want to remember that we are not alone in the body of Christ, but we are connected to our brothers and sisters around the world, around the islands. And so we lift up uh, Pastor Todd Morikawa and uh, Kailua Baptist Church. We pray for their elders, for Reed and others who serve with him. We pray for the church there and the ministry that is happening in Kailua. We ask that the gospel preached there would make deep inroads into the community, into the military base, the marine base on, in Kailua. We pray that you would keep them strong, keep them following you, and may they persevere, and we as well. And we do lift up our church plant always, Waehu Community Church. We pray for Pastor Rocky as he preaches. May he preach with clarity conviction, and power, and may you fill him and nourish the church in Waihu. We pray. Do that here. Do that across our islands in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, number one. I have three points. Number one, the statue. We will cover this narrative with three kind of movements or three anchors. Number one, the statue. Number two, the story. Number one, the statue. Number two, the story. Number three, the stone. The stone. So number one, the statue, verses 31 to 35. So Daniel starts to reveal the dream, the very thing the king has asked. Can you reveal the dream? And Daniel begins, and what does Daniel describe? He describes a great, bright, frightening image. Apparently, this is an image of a man. This image is composed of different metallic and iron and clay, different materials. We see the first thing is the head is made out of Gold. And what is the chest and arms made out of? Silver. And then his torso and his thighs are made out of? Bronze. And his legs and his toes, his feet are what? Iron and iron mixed with clay. His feet and toes are iron and mixed with clay. And in this dream, this dream of this terrifying image, we see all of a sudden Nebuchadnezzar saw a stone that's cut out with no human hands. And he strikes the image on the feet of iron and clay, and all of a sudden, the whole thing, what? All the parts come tumbling down, broken into pieces, shattered on the stone, only to be carried away by the wind, never to be seen again. Meanwhile, that stone that struck the image becomes, it grows and becomes a great mountain and fills the whole earth. It's worth taking a moment to ponder, to wonder what was so terrifying about this dream to Nebuchadnezzar. Think about that. So we read this, and I didn't see any of you like, and I doubt any of you the past few weeks have gone home unable to sleep over this passage, right? No, probably not. It's not giving you any nightmares. The only nightmare you have perhaps is of Pastor Randy's sermon never ending. <laughs> perhaps that's a nightmare you have this second. But I doubt this has caused much terror on any of you. Why did it bother him? Why did it bother Nebuchadnezzar so much? See, before we get into the interpretation from Daniel, just think for a minute. If I was, if you were Nebuchadnezzar, what would you think about this? What would you think this is? Clearly, you would think the image represents who? You, right? You would think this image represents me. This is what I'm seeing. Me and my kingdom and my reign. And and what is this stone? Does it represent a person in my leadership cabinet? Does it represent somebody who is near to me, who is going to try and come against me, perhaps an assassination attempt? Or maybe it's another country or another kingdom rising up, and that'll be my undoing. Or is it something else? What's going on here? We could also consider the medals. The Babylonians were no fools when it comes to metal. 
They knew what it was worth. They knew how much it weighed. They knew how strong it was. And clearly, the image of gold, silver, bronze, iron, clearly this image is top-heavy. Each metal is successively heavier than the one underneath it. Gold is heavier than silver. Silver is heavier than iron, uh, than bronze. Bronze is heavier than iron, and so on and so forth. And so it is a top-heavy image. There's also decreasing weight from top to bottom. There's decreasing value of material. Gold, silver, bronze, iron, iron mixed with clay. There's a decreasing value in the material and an increasing strength till you get to the bottom. And so if, if I'm Nebuchadnezzar, is this a critique of my kingdom, of my strength, of my rule? Again, he could go a lot of ways with this, but we could easily see how he could be concerned if you are Nebuchadnezzar over this dream. And so Daniel tells him, he describes his statue. Now, what does it mean? So that's the image, the statue, number two, the story, verse 36 to 43. The story. So Daniel gives the interpretation, or the, the dream. He gives the dream. And if I'm Daniel, I'm going to be thinking like, that's the image. And he's not dead yet. So it must mean, all right, I'm doing all right. This is so far going well because Nebuchadnezzar hasn't told me, nope, wrong, you're dead. Liar. So he's still alive, which means he must have accurately described the dream, which is a miracle in and of itself if you just think about it. He describes the dream that God told him in the vision. And now he reveals to Nebuchadnezzar something incredible. He says, Nebuchadnezzar, what you saw didn't just concern yourself. Actually, God revealed to you what would be in days after this, in the latter days. In this image, you are seeing the fall, the rise and fall, a succession of empires, not just Babylon. Fascinating. Hundreds of years into the future, Nebuchadnezzar sees God reveals a dream to a pagan king. So Daniel starts with the head in his interpretation, verse 37. Note how he begins. Verse 37, he starts out wisely. You, O king, you, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory, and into whose hands he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. You, O king, are the head of gold. Did you see what Daniel stressed there in his explanation? Where was the stress? Where was the emphasis? He doesn't just say, Nebuchadnezzar, you're the head of gold. What did he say? Who gave it to him? The God of heaven. He says it three times. God of heaven has given the power, the might, and the glory into whose hands he has given wherever they dwell all these things, making you rule over them. You are the head of gold. Daniel is letting Nebuchadnezzar know. You have to remember from chapter 1, this isn't just uh, in captivity, I'm punishing Israel for her sins. What's happening in the mind of Babylon and everybody around them is a battle of gods. Who is superior? Is Yahweh inferior to Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian gods? That's what's at stake here. And Daniel just said, who gave Nebuchadnezzar the power? the God of heaven. Daniel just said, nope, God is in control. And he tells Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. You are the head of gold. So we have to say, who made this pagan king ruler? God did. God did. That's important to remember. The same is true of every successive kingdom. Who raises up kings? Who removes kings? Who raises up presidents? Who removes presidents? It is not the Republican Party. It is not the Democrat Party. It is not some mixture of the two or the Electoral College. It is none of these things. At the end of the day, no matter what you think of the president, not just Trump, but Barack Obama and all before him, God put him there. And the same will be true in 2020, whether you like him or not. 
God put him there. God put Nebuchadnezzar there. He put all the successive kingdoms in place. And Daniel says, you, O King Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. Verse 39, he says, another kingdom inferior to yours. Now, in the Hebrew, inferior, you could say, well, it's a, it's a lesser kingdom, but he doesn't tell us how it's inferior. He just says inferior. But in Hebrew, it's, uh, sorry, not Hebrew. This would be Aramaic. So in Aramaic, this would literally be lower. So it's not inferior per se, but he could just be working his way down the statue. Lower than you, you're the head, the lower one, and he goes on and on, the arms of silver. So he's not necessarily talking about inferior per se as working his way down the statue. Now, he's going to get into the, the silver and the bronze and the iron and the toes. Now, I'm going to ask you here, put on your thinking cap a little bit, all right? So I know it's been a long week. you got Valentine's Day. You're tired from your partying, perhaps. I don't know, right? You had a long work week, but put on your thinking caps here, okay? I'm going to get a little technical. If you're new to this, just bear with me for a few minutes. I'll bring it back soon, all right? So just stick in there, hang in there, get what you can. If you're totally lost, it's okay. That, I'm un I understand that. So after the head of gold... He says, you, Nebuchadnezzar, are the head of gold. After this, people go in all sorts of directions in the, what the rest of this statue means. People go all kind of theories, all kind of ideas, all kind of proposals as to what this means, and, and they have their own histories to back it up. Most well-known in our locale, in our country, is perhaps what's known as the dispensational interpretation. The dispensational interpretation. This is so well known that you probably don't even know it has a name or that there's other views to it. You've probably only ever conceived, there's a good chance, unless you've been here for our Revelation series that I finished up last year, that that you've perhaps even never even heard of this passage conceived outside of the dispensational understanding of it. Now, if you're unfamiliar with that term, think about it like this. Perhaps if you've ever heard of the Left Behind series or Seven Years of Tribulation or the Secret Rapture of the Church, these types of ideas, the Antichrist, that's what we're talking about here. That's known as typically dispensationalism. And what I'm going to say is that this is not, it is not, the uniform position of Christians today. It is not uniform today. That is not what everybody believes. It is certainly not representative of what Christians have believed and taught throughout history. That is not uniform. If that's all you've heard, then I just want you to know there are other views. I personally, other godly people would disagree with me. They're wrong. No, I'm just, right? Uh, I personally would see other views as more tenable. But this is a predominant understanding in our country, the dispensational one, so it is the one I constantly have to interact with when I discuss these things because it is what frames the backdrop for these discussions. Now, I'm going to delineate that view of this passage. This is what I grew up learning. This is what I learned in Bible, what, what I learned in Bible college, what I was taught and believed for many years until I learned otherwise. So, I'm going to describe that now. So that viewpoint essentially, and somewhat accurately, I'll say, sees these as successive kingdoms or empires. That much is clear. Many people agree with that. They would identify the golden head as Babylon. That's the only marker we get told for sure from the scriptures. God gives us that one. That's why everybody agrees on it. After that, he doesn't tell us. So... Uh, everybody is a little bit different, but this is the almost uniform dispensational understanding here. The head of gold is Babylon. Silver would be the Medo-Persian Empire, the, the arms and chest of silver, those two arms, the Medes and the Persians, the Medo-Persian Empire, followed by the bronze, the torso and thighs of bronze, which would be the Macedonian Empire. You know that probably better as the Greek Empire, led by none other than Alexander the Great. Uh, notable because their soldiers, their, ar their 
uh, military might, their infantry soldiers, used bronze shields, bronze weapons. They were stronger in those days, so they used those as suppose like the Persians who had more cloth, thick cloth for armor and shields. Theirs was bronze coated wood shields. So Greece, followed by iron down at the lower legs and feet, the Roman Empire. The legs of iron would be the Roman Empire And then you get to the feet and toes of iron mixed with clay. They would say it is a revived Roman Empire yet to be revealed as of Sunday, February 16th, 2020. Yet to be revealed. So what they would say is that the Roman Empire, as far as we know, that they they would suggest that there have never been 10 kings ruling over the Roman Empire that we know of as of yet. And so they propose the theory that in the end times, the Roman Empire will be revived, 2,020 years almost later, uh, will be revived and will come back into being in some form that is weaker, yet maintains the ferocity of the original. So they're saying in the future, as of today, this part would still be future to them, We're looking for a revived Roman Empire. Now they're going to bring in elements from chapter 7. Now, I didn't tell you this yet, uh, but chapter 2 and chapter 7, this is a very tight uh, literary structure called a chiasm. Chapter 2 and chapter 7 are paralleled in the Hebrew, and therefore they address much of the same things. And so they're going to add in elements from chapter 7, which we're not getting to till September. So they add in these visual elements now and fill in the rest of the blank. And so they would be looking for, in this revived Roman Empire, 10 kings, a lot like the, how many toes are on your feet? Most of you probably have 10 toes. Maybe there's a few of you who have nine or 11 or less. I don't know, right? Um, But most of you have 10 toes. I say just like 10 toes, Chapter 7 is going to describe a beast with 10 horns. One horn is going to come up, displace three of those horns, and he is going to rule. So they're looking for in this revived Roman Empire, 10 rulers that will constitute a one world government with an antichrist rising up to displace three of those world leaders, and he becomes the sinister leader, the hitman of Satan, to kick off the final three-and-a-half-year march to the end. In that scheme, there's all kinds of other things happening in this time as well. The secret rapture of the church and three-and-a-half-year peace treaty with Israel. It'll ultimately all end with the second coming of Jesus to establish his 1,000-year millennial kingdom on the earth, bind Satan, rule the earth from Jerusalem over the nations, and then we continue on and on in the scheme. I am not proposing that that is accurate. That is what I am not proposing as accurate. But what is prevalent in many, perhaps even in this room, and many in our island. That is the predominant prevalent theory. Again, lots of godly people believe that. I disagree. That is not the uniform position throughout church history. And I will be presenting as I did in Revelation. If you want more, you could get the cliff notes and go look at Revelation, uh, the series there. But uh, I will be working through a different proposal in depth when we get to chapter 7, 8, 9, 10. 11, 12. You got to stay till September, though. You have to stay till September. Okay, Tuesday. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, you, gotta, you can find it online, calllouisbaptist.com, or just cancel your ticket. Stay all the way. No. Uh, that's awesome. That's it. Um, so, first, the combining of the ele- What's What are a few problems? Let me just give a few problems with that understanding from Daniel two, a few problems. The first problem is the combining of elements in these dream with elements from chapter seven without warrant. Now, true, chapter two and chapter seven are parallel. True, they have a lot to do with one another, but it is not sound interpretation to take images from one chapter and impose the significance of those images on another chapter. That is not the way you start interpreting dreams. For instance, 
Daniel chapter 2 mentions nothing about the significance of the number 10. He mentions nothing about the significance of having 10 toes on the image of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. That number, 10, comes from Daniel chapter 7 of a terrifying beast. And people say, well, if I was a dispensationalist, I'd say, well, we know everybody has 10 toes. That beast had 10 horns. But I would argue Daniel does not draw any attention in the interpretation to the number of toes. The only thing that he draws attention to is the attempting of the blending of material of iron and clay on the feet and the toes, not just the toes themselves, which I would say, suggest further, we have no more scriptural license to impose significance into the toes of the image than we have to impose a significance of ten fingers on the chest in silver, the chest and arms of silver, do we? Nobody looks at the, the arms and chest of silver and say, well, he's got ten fingers. I wonder if we should look for an empire like the Medo-Persian Empire that has ten kings. No, nobody talks about the fingers of the image. Why? Because Daniel doesn't talk about them. Why? Because they're not significant for what Daniel's showing, you see? And in like manner, the number of toes on this image, ten, is not significant for what Daniel is trying to say. He's drawing attention to the mixture of materials and how they will not mix. He's drawing attention to the brittleness, to the strength, to the decreased value of that time. Now, we could go on and on. Many of the dispensational understandings of scriptures, of rulers, of history, comes from a selective choosing of facts and numbers to the exclusion of others to paint a pic the picture they desire for their system. That is not required of the text, nor does it accurately reflect history. For instance, let me give you another instance. Why would the ten horns taken in chapter 7 be considered literal? So they would say there's ten literal, right? Ten horns, ten literal kings, that's what we're looking for. Why would the ten horns from chapter 7 be taken literally when the very first occurrence of ten in the book of Daniel is figurative? Clearly figurative. You say, well, where is the first occurrence of ten? You've already read it. You didn't think anything of it. Chapter 1, verse 20. Daniel's how many times smarter than all the other wise men in Babylon? Anybody remember? Ten. Daniel's ten times wiser than all the other wise men in Babylon. Is that a literal ten times? Did they take a, a Babylon SAT, ACT, and Daniel's tests were ten times higher approximately? No, it's a figure of speech. Why would he use ten? Because ten in the ancient world was a round number depicting completeness, totality, finality, fullness. Those often uses these things. The Decalogue, you think, well, there literally are ten commandments, Pastor Randy. And the Decalogue, there's ten literal commandments in the covenant of Moses. The Decalogue, no, there's not. You say there's not? No, there's not. There's 666 or seven, depending on how you count. The ten become representative of the fullness of the Decalogue, don't they? You see? There's a lot more commandments than just 10 in the law of Moses. God gave more than 10 commandments at Mount Sinai. You see, there's more. Those are representative. Because in the ancient world, this is often how they used these numbers. So why would the first use in, of 10 and Daniel be figurative, but in chapter 7, now it's literal? And we are, after all, talking about a dream, a vision, aren't we? We're not looking for literal beasts flying across the landscape, literal lions with literal eagle's wings li literally being plucked out. You see, these are visions. They're symbols. They mean something literally, yes, but we need to be careful. We need to be careful. It's not like we're trying to overly allegorize or spiritualize a text. That's not the case. It's not something we do without context and unless the passage warrants it. It would be wrong. It would be wrong. 
to be overly figurative in an obviously literal passage, that would be wrong. It would also be wrong to be overly literal in an obviously figurative or symbolic passage as well. You see, we need to be careful on both. Scripture helps us with context. We'll interact more with the visions of chapter 7, 8, 9 later in September. Sorry, leaving on Tuesday. My apologies. For now, let's just say we need to be careful of importing symbols and imagery and assigning importance to numbers in a vision that Daniel himself does not draw any attention to. So, he tells Nebuchadnezzar, this dream reveals the rise and fall of empires for hundreds of years into the future. And then he sees something different. Then he sees something different. Point number three, the stone. Verse 44 to 49, the stone. Verse 44 says this and following. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. After he sees this image, he sees something else, doesn't he? He doesn't see a man-made statue in contrast to a man-made statue of metals and precious materials. He sees a stone cut with no human hands. This stone grows to encompass the whole world. In response to this, we have the second stage of the climax that I mentioned earlier. The ultimate resolution of the passage, see, the, the climax was two stages. Not just will God tell the dream to Daniel. That's not the only climax. He does. The second stage of the climax is will the king accept what Daniel says? You see? Will the king accept the dream described by Daniel and its interpretation? That's the second stage of the climax. And what is the answer? The answer, the king responds by falling down and paying homage or worshiping Daniel. Undoubtedly, this made Daniel very uncomfortable. And undoubtedly, Daniel was just happy the king got up and didn't tear his head off. Nebuchadnezzar proclaims the superiority of Daniel's God over the other gods. Side note of application now, all right? You need to be very careful you should not see this as a sign of Nebuchadnezzar's conversion. He proclaims the majesty, the superiority of Yahweh. You should be careful before saying, oh, look, Nebuchadnezzar got saved. We know that's not what happened. We know that. He's, he proclaimed the superiority of Yahweh, not the singularity of Yahweh. Nebuchadnezzar was a polytheist. He had no issue saying, oh, this God is supreme now, or that God's supreme now, and I'll worship that God with all my other gods that I worship. He had no issues doing that. should be careful about seeing that as a sign of conversion, and we need to be much slower in our culture in 2020 to cheer, to proclaim the fame, when we see famous people, movie stars, athletes, politicians, people that make cursory mentions of God or Jesus as if they are suddenly godly people or followers of Christ, even though their pattern of life or the fruit of their life shows little sign of genuine conversion or sincerity. Often what we see at the Oscar, Oscars or in post-game interviews is little more than a token nod to a cultural God, just like Nebuchadnezzar. And many times, Christians are quick to say, oh yeah, look, they're a Christian now, and they still continue to live like the devil, showing no signs of any true dedication or following King Jesus, just like Nebuchadnezzar. You say, how do you know, Pastor Randy, that for sure that Nebuchadnezzar didn't get saved there? 
If you were to turn the page to chapter 3, verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar takes this image. Remember Daniel says, you're the head of gold? And what does Nebuchadnezzar make? An image, a huge statue of who? Himself. And what's it made out of from the head to the toe? All gold. That is defiance. That is defiance. That is not worship. In effect, Nebuchadnezzar says, no, thanks for telling me the dream. Thanks for the interpretation. You got one thing wrong. I'm all gold. My kingdom will last forever. And he tries to get everybody to worship him, doesn't he? We'll cover that next week in some more detail. But we know he didn't become a true follower of Yahweh. So we should be slow in our culture to affirm just because somebody mentions God or Jesus in the news. Application. Let's close out with some takeaways today. Application. What does this mean for your life? You're here. Perhaps you came in. You have marriage problems, personal problems, family problems, children problems, health problems, work problems, house problems. You came in here needing some encouragement for your soul, a word from God. Surely there's more than a historical lecture. Yes, yes there is. First application, what is the message to Nebuchadnezzar and to us? What is, the, what is the message to Nebuchadnezzar and to us? Number one, God's kingdom is ultimate, not yours. God's kingdom is ultimate, not yours and not mine. You say, okay, that sounds good. See, this troubled Nebuchadnezzar it gave him nightmares that his kingdom could come crashing down. It troubled Nebuchadnezzar, and it troubles all who seek their own kingdom first. So let me ask you, where, what areas are there in your life that you are seeking your own kingdom instead of God's? Think about that for a moment. Where are you trying to be Nebuchadnezzar, the whole statue in your life? Many times, if I'm honest, my anger towards my wife, towards my children, and I hope you do know your pastor sins against his wife and his children. I hope you don't think I am sinless. I'm a man, like you are men, and I am a human, and I have problems in my sin struggles, so don't ever think I don't sin. That would be a grave mistake. But in my anger towards my wife, towards my children, if I'm honest, many times, probably most times, it's because they aren't seeking my kingdom the way I want them to. They're not seeking the glory of my name, the advancement of my cause, the way I want them to. Perhaps you can relate. How often is your anger evoked because somebody actually sinned against you? like an actual sin that's, that's not a violation of preference, that's not uh, crossing some unknown, un, un, uh, unclear expectation, but is an actual sin. How often is your anger evoked because somebody actually sinned against you? Or is it mostly because you were simply inconvenienced? You see? You were simply inconvenienced. You had a desire that wasn't met, you had, you received something you didn't want, and it inconvenienced you. How often does that happen in your life? Perhaps you seek your own kingdom, shifting gears a little bit in recreation. You spend so much time in enjoying the good life on Maui that you rarely engage with God's people or seek to advance His kingdom. Or, you work and you work and you work and you take that overtime shift and that call back and you go in, you, you come in early, you stay later, you're trying to build your own kingdom and you're always too busy or at least that's what you tell yourself for the things of God. All of us need to hear this. Just like the image of the man that Nebuchadnezzar saw, that statue, we need to hear this, all the works of our hands 
No matter how strong they are or how valuable, are destined to be blown away by the wind, never to be seen again. All the works of your hands. It just baffles me that Alexander the Great, age 25, the greatest military tactician one of the world has ever seen, he's student of Aristotle personally himself, did more, conquered the world from age 25 to age 33. There's a footnote on history. His kingdom, sure, you can see statues, they're crumbling, they're dying. Most people know nothing about how he defeated the Persian Empire at outstanding odds. These great feats all destined to crumble away and be blown away in the, in the wind. That's going to be all of our lives. You're here and you're going to be gone. And all your works, the things you are struggling for that take you away from the things of God, will be blown away in the wind. Invest your time. Invest your energy in things that will last. Lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, things that will bring ultimate joy, namely in the work of God. And it will require some weekend time, yes. It will require leaving some play time, yes. But we will be with God forever and ever and ever and ever and ages and ages. And when those are over, it'll be more ages and more ages and more ages. And when those are over, it'll be more and more and more to come. You will be with God forever and ever, enjoying rest and seeing beauty and having your joy overflowed. So, beloved... Spend your life for things that matter. Woe to those who are found sleeping and playing when the master comes. Hear the words of Jesus. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto you. Number two. Second application. The significance of the stone, remember that stone that came, was cut without human hands? Remember that contrast against the bright metallic image of gold, silver, bronze, iron, iron mixed with clay? The significance of the stone, just being a, a rock, points to the apparent, what seems to be the apparent lack of value of the kingdom of God in the eyes of the world. The apparent lack of value. So worldly speaking, when you look at the kingdom of God, you, you, just, you probably walked in and you walked on the parking lot and you probably didn't notice anything about what you were walking on. Just rocks, pavement, asphalt. Of, of, of little apparent value. That's what's meant by this contrast, this stone. It's not gold, it's not silver. In the eyes of the world, it lacks value. Yet, it is this stone that will grow to encompass the whole entire planet. It is the kingdom of God. Does that sound familiar? I hope your concordance in your brains tripped as you hear that. Hear the words of Jesus, Matthew 13. He told a parable very much like this. Matthew 13, verse 31 and 32, he said this. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed, small, that a man took and sowed in his field. Verse 32, it is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. You see, Jesus is attesting to, you look at the kingdom of God, it looks of little value. And yet it grows larger than everything. Or more directly tied to our passage, Acts chapter 4. This is quoted several times in the New Testament, this reference, Acts 4, 10 through 12. The context, Peter heals a man who's lame from birth. He heals a man miraculously, and they all want to know by what power did you do this? Hear Peter. 4 verse 10. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel, but that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Verse 11. Hear this out. Remember, Daniel sees a stone. 
Verse 11. This Jesus is the stone. Interesting. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. See, we rightfully think much of the second coming of Jesus as incredible news, right? We want Jesus to come, yes and amen. However, don't gloss over the importance and the magnitude of the first coming of Jesus. Don't gloss over the massive importance of that point in history when Jesus came because it meant for the world the coming of a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, Regardless of what empires or one names for those kings and the statues, this rock has clearly come and is growing to encompass the entire world. You say, how do you know that, Pastor? Hear the words of the angel to Mary. Here's Mary. Luke chapter 1, verse 31 to 33. Here's Mary, and he sees her. Tells her, don't freak out, don't die. I'm here with good news. That's, uh, that's the new international Randy version. And this is what he says to Mary, verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, verse 33, note what he says very carefully. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Of his kingdom there will be no end. When Jesus came, did a kingdom come with him? Is Jesus a king? Can you be a king without a kingdom? No. You can have a usurper on the throne. You could have all these other things, but you're not a king if you don't have a kingdom. Jesus came preaching, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And of his reign, there will be no end. He will reign forever and ever. So maybe you're here today And you regard the message of Jesus of little value. Maybe that's you. You're here and you've heard the gospel. You've kind of heard about Christianity. Maybe you've never seriously considered it amongst all the other world religions. You think, doesn't everybody believe the same thing? I mean, when you boil it all down, don't all religions just kind of teach like love each other and, and be nice to people? No, they don't. They don't. Many of them teach people who believe differently you kill or you tax heavily. They don't believe and teach the same thing. So maybe you're here. You've never seriously considered the claims of Christ among other world religions. Or maybe you're here and you regard the claims of Christ, the gospel of little value, you wouldn't say it. You'd say, oh no, I'm a Christian, I follow God, but you actually claim it of little value as evidenced by how much time you spend pursuing it. As evidenced by how little time you spend pursuing it. Maybe that's you. Either way, I invite you to hear the message of Daniel. This stone cut without hands is Jesus, and his kingdom is coming, and he offers you salvation today through repentance of sins by faith in him. And he will forgive you if you turn from being your own king and you trust in him by faith. And there is salvation in no other name under heaven except for the name of Jesus. Will you give your life to him today? Will you regard that stone cut as no human hand as worth casting everything in for? Lastly, 
Consider the effect this passage would have had on the readers. If you're a Jew in exile, consider the effect it would have on you. What you have before you, as you see Nebuchadnezzar bowing down to Daniel, we'll see this more in the weeks to come. What you have before you is a little piece of resistance literature. That's what we call it. It's a piece of resistance literature. Not, not resisting the king, per se, but resisting any attempt to compromise your faith in your life. From the culture, from the pressure at work, it is calling us to persevere. It's designed to help the people of God living in a world that's in opposition to them. It tells you this morning, don't give up. Don't give in. Don't quit. Keep going. In the midst of a hostile world, stay faithful. Stand firm. And even though we dwell within a culture that is very different from our heavenly culture, a world that holds very radical and different values from our own, just as they were, we ought to stand firm. We must stand firm. So let me close with the lyrics from our song of response. Just a, a passage of it, because maybe this is you. You've been standing firm. You've been struggling. You've been fighting. Hear the words of this song. Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, think about that. If you tarry, if you wait until you're better, you will never come at all. You will never come at all. Come today to Christ, beloved. He will forgive you. He will sustain you and he will restore you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this word of hope that you gave to your people through Daniel. You are a God who answers prayer. You are the God who rules over the future and the stream of history, and your purposes are ultimate, not ours. May we live for you and your glory this day. In Jesus' name, amen.